This episode is sponsored by Voltoro. Keep on listening and you'll find out more about how you can buy allocated gold when the Bitcoin bull run reaches its peak. This way, you don't have to deal with infinitely inflationary fiat or banks that freeze your account. Also, note that trading involves risks and the information presented is not financial advice. This episode is also sponsored by Wasabi Wallet. Go to wasabiwallet.io, download Wasabi for your OS and significantly boost your network level and transaction privacy. Hello there and welcome to Season 8, Episode 5 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad and I'm very glad, and that's my favorite pun as I mentioned in the previous episode, I'm very glad that today I get to do an interview with the CEO of a company that's actually trying to build something new and exciting in the space. So as we speak right now, I don't think that the device had been shipped to all the people who pre-ordered it. But it's still interesting that it takes a different approach from most and has a very fascinating way of providing some plausible deniability in the shape of the form of the case. It looks like a cell phone that's not a smartphone. And it's called The Passport by Foundation Devices. And my guest today is Zach Herbert. It's good to have you, sir. And let's talk about hardware wallets. Let's do it. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you announced this device, the Passport, sometime in 2020, if I recall correctly. Yes, in the, uh, in the summer, I think late summer of 2020. And my first impression of it when I first saw it on Twitter was that it provides security under a very nice form factor. And it looks like a mobile phone. And that's something which I appreciate and something about which I wrote in my Bitcoin magazine comparison from 2019 when I basically said, what does the hardware wallet look like and why it's important for it to not look like a dedicated device. The more general general purpose it looks like, the better it is for your privacy and, you know, for crossing borders and not getting any kind of checks. And then I looked into the features and I noticed that it has a camera for QR code scanning and it also has PSBT. And what was the initial reception and feedback like when you first announced it? Yeah, overall, it was it was pretty good. Um, We got a lot of feedback around just the the design of the device itself and then also kind of the the design and branding for foundation devices as a company. Um, I think it's kind of clear that most of the hardware wallets to date uh, have not really been you know, design driven in terms of uh, the brand, the look. We we were trying to make something that um, that looked really nice and is also just really intuitive and nice to use. And people were also excited about the QR codes um, because there seems to be a growing trend around doing these air gapped transactions via QR codes. Um, so yeah, overall, you know, was was excited about how it was received. Was able to go on some some podcasts uh, last year and talk more about it. And uh, we're really excited. We're going to be shipping to customers 
probably in about uh, three weeks. So really excited to get the first devices out there and get a lot of feedback and just iterate, you know, really fast over this year. Yeah, that's very good to hear because I know there is some sort of global shortage of components. It's for the same reason that it's very hard today to find a PlayStation 5 or a graphics card or, I don't know, lots of components. Even laptops are hard to find. And I suppose it has a lot to do with the manufacturing and distribution of chips. Mm -hmm. I know that it's also hard to find Trezors. I've spoken to people who have have had their orders delayed and that's not necessarily a good thing but at least it means that they're selling their already existing stocks which is good yeah the the chip shortage that you hear about on the news doesn't directly affect something like a hardware wallet because most of those chips are around the seven nanometer level uh typically that affects uh anything but an iPhone. You know, Apple is kind of in a privileged position where they can get as many 5 nanometer chips as needed from TSMC. Uh, The chips you find in in hardware wallets are from companies like ST Microelectronics or Microchip, and they're not done at like the leading edge, uh, you know, chip processes. So what we've seen is, yes, there's definitely long lead times, but it's been like that for at least a few years in the component world. What we're seeing, though, which is surprising us, is component prices going up really quickly. Um, and I don't know if that's due to, you know, partially the supply issue, and then maybe also due to some inflationary forces with all the money printing. But um, we did buy all of our components for a first batch of a thousand, you know, uh, probably in fall of last year. So we we locked those down you know, so that we wouldn't have any problems. Um, but we're looking at, you know, buying new batches and seeing prices of the processor go up like, you know, 20% already. So, you know, we may see some of those effects kind of cause the hardware wallet prices to go up uh, throughout this year. Okay, thank you for the clarification, as it makes yeah. a lot of sense. And yeah, I suppose there's not a lot of demand for this specific type of general purpose chips. But what I was about to ask you at this point is, why launch another hardware wallet? And I've spoken yesterday with Lawrence Nahum from Blockstream, and I've asked him mm-hmm. the same question. The market seems a bit oversaturated with devices, and competition is objectively good. And it's useful to have research, especially on the software side, as hardware has a hard time keeping up with what's going on. So you need a lot of people to look at the code and improve it very fast. So what was the determining factor which made you decide, okay, I'm going to join the hardware wallet market with this device? Yeah, the, the short answer is that we as a team and as just individuals are not really satisfied or were not satisfied with the options for hardware wallets that exist today. Um, I think the simplest way to explain it is that Coinbase owns, you know, over, over 1% of the Bitcoin supply at this point or custodies. And it seems like most new users to Bitcoin um, are just storing it on exchanges. And we really want to see mass adoption of sovereignty and self-custody. 
And we just think that the existing hardware wallets today are not sufficient to get really to attract the new users. Obviously, if you've been a Bitcoiner for a few years, you've probably learned how to use a Trezor or a Ledger or a different device. But we don't think that uh, you should have to you know, learn how to use a hardware wallet. We don't think that you should have to watch hours of tutorials and figure out how to enter you know, your eight-digit pin using two buttons. And you know, we also don't think that you should be uh, having to go to your desktop or laptop computer and plug into a USB port and boot up the software and take, you know, five or so minutes to send a transaction. Uh, so we want you to do something more mobile-centric, more fast. And then we also just, like I mentioned before with the design, wanted to make something that was more like a premium product, um, trying to be more like the, like the Apple of uh, this industry. And so in terms of the UX, the design, uh, those were some of the main reasons why we, we wanted to make something new, something that was much more approachable to all of the new users that are going to be flowing into Bitcoin during this bull market. And then also, we care a lot about open source, and we really wanted to set a strong example for other companies that are building hardware in the Bitcoin space. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around open source over the last week or so. Uh, and we wanted to make something that was open source to like to the extreme, both from the firmware perspective, where it's you know easier to find you know GPL open source software, but then also we want to make sure that we really go hardcore on making the designs for the wallet, the hardware designs, the electrical designs open and really easy to audit and understand. And so we're trying to be a leader in the open hardware space. And we're trying to apply these great design principles to open hardware. So those are the main reasons why we wanted to make something new. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Even though you describe the passport as something which works autonomously, so it doesn't require you to connect it to your computer. And I was about to ask you if it works with third-party wallets mm -hmm. straight out of the box. Like if I want to connect it to Wasabi or Electrum, or I know that Blackstream Green and Blue Wallet also have this type of integration. Will I be able to do it? Yes. So um, we actually do not have our own software wallet. So we're just a hardware wallet. Um, we think more. We think about Passport as being more of like a like a key signing platform that is designed to work with as many of the popular software wallets and services that exist today. So, for example, we've been doing our any any videos and testing with Blue Wallet because Blue Wallet offers the ability to do transactions via air-gapped QR codes, which is really really cool, and obviously that's the primary and recommended means for using Passport. Um and Blue Wallet, you know, does PSBTs natively. And we're also, you know, with with the SD port on the micro SD port on Passport, uh, we can do any PSBTs via SD card. So if there's any software wallet that supports PSBTs, either via QR codes or via micro SD card, uh, then it works with, with Passport today. 
Um, so what we're going to be doing over the over this year is, you know, reaching out and working with all of the different wallets that do not have QR code support to add QR code support. It obviously works a little bit better on mobile than on desktop because, um, you know, laptop webcams are usually not very good. Um, but things like, you know, Spectre, uh, Sparrow, Blue Wallet are all working with QR codes today. And then anything else pretty much that supports uh, PSBTs, um, whether that's Electrum or Wasabi or others, uh, typically they're supporting it, you know, via SD card. Uh, I think cold card is probably the most popular use case for that. You know, like Wasabi, for example, has a has like a cold card button where you can uh, import the PSVT over SD card. And so all of that supports Passport today. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll see, um, you know, a lot of QR code support added as well to these popular wallets. Mm hmm. I was about to ask you, since the ways in which you can sign transactions with the passport involved the SD card port and the camera, why was it these two ways of doing it? And why did you not opt in for something like Bluetooth or USB or other ways which seem to be a lot more popular among other hardware wallet devices? Yeah, I think, I think firstly... It the term hardware wallet is tough because hardware wallet can mean a lot of different things. Hardware wallet can mean something like a, like a passport device that has no USB port, no wireless communications. Hardware wallet can also mean something like a Ledger Nano X that has Bluetooth. Uh, it can mean something like the Blockstream Jade that actually has Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. So I feel like we have a spectrum of devices that are offering different security models, which is actually really good, especially in multi-sig setups where you you want uh, different security models um, to strengthen your you know your cold storage solution. Um, we just wanted to make this as secure as possible and reduce the attack surfaces as much as possible. Um, and so that was the reason why we said, you know what, let's not do a USB port. Let's power Passport with AAA batteries. Let's um, use a screen that does not have any embedded uh, chip inside of it running unknown firmware. Because if we were to use a touchscreen, you typically deal with multiple chips that are embedded in these touchscreens. So a lot of our decisions were just around minimizing attack surface, minimizing the amount of uh, basically black box chips in the device and trying to fix basically, you know, having no black box code in the device either. Um, and if you're using things like, like Wi-Fi or stuff, oftentimes you're using these proprietary, um, proprietary like, uh, driver stacks that are included with the chip. Uh, so we just want to be kind of hardcore about it. And, we also thought that we can provide this great user experience using QR codes that remove the need to put in something like USB or Bluetooth. That's interesting. And since you mentioned that you don't have a black box chip, I do notice on the website in the section about details and technical specifications that you have a secure element chip and I was about yes. to ask, what kind of secure element chip is this? Is it like the one in the Bitbox O2, like the ATEC, whatever it's called, which is open source? Uh, 
yes, so we actually have four black box chips in the device because every chip is kind of a black box. So one is just the processor by STM. Two of them are like, they're totally dumb chips. They're one's a keypad controller and one's like a power management chip. And then we also have the same secure element, the ATEX 608A that's running in uh, Bitbox 02 and ColdCard. Um, that chip is nice because it's what I would call like a dumb secure element. <laughs> it, it does not execute any code. There's no operating system running on the secure element, which is different from something like a ledger where it's actually running a proprietary closed source operating system. What's cool about the 608A from Microchip is that you can use it for a bunch of native functions, or you can use it just for key storage. And it has a number of key storage slots on the chip. Uh, so we use it the same way that Bitbox02 and ColdCard uses it. We use it specifically for the key storage slots. And uh, we use it in combination with the normal MCU running on the device from STM. So all of the code is open source and running on the MCU. And then it's relying on the secure element for a couple things, for key storage, and then also for a couple counters, which are used to limit the number of pin attempts. Right, so given the existence of the security chip, on a scale from 1 to 10, how open source and how transparent would you say that the passport actually is? I would say we're probably around an 8 or a 9. I think that including a secure element on a device is definitely a trade-off in terms of the transparency and auditability. You know, I know Trezor has talked about this before, and, and they're pretty adamant on not using any kind of secure element. I think what the cold card guys and the, and the Bitbox guys have done is the right move, where if you're adding on this chip, but you're not, you're not relying on it, on it solely, you're not running any proprietary or closed source code on the chip, you're purely kind of augmenting the security with that chip, then I think it, it can make a lot of sense. And by the way, there's other cool things that you can do with that chip to augment security, which I don't think any of the existing hardware wallet companies are doing and something that we're looking at for future iterations. For example, you could add you could add like a tamper resistance to it where if someone were to open up the device, it would immediately see that and wipe the data. So there's a bunch of things that this 608A chip is capable of doing. And it's possible to add it to your open source device and augment the security without relying on that security. And then if that chip is compromised in some way, it does not uh, degrade the security of the device because you're using, uh, you know, the, the main MCU to actually run and execute all of the code. I really appreciate the honesty as I suppose some other people would have said, you know, it's a, it's a 9.5 or something. <laughs> well, nothing is. And I hate to, I hate to say it if I'm going to be even more honest, but, um, every chip is a black box chip. The only really cool effort, I think, in the space right now is what, you know, Trezor's group is doing 
uh, around, uh, was it Tropic Square, mm-hmm. right? The truly open source silicon and trying to make an open source uh, secure, uh, secure element or security chip. But I got to say, even then, it's like you, you, you kind of have to unpack each layer. You know, even running an operating system that's open source or, or any kind of firmware that's open source on an MCU, like the STM chip that, that we use, that Coldcard uses, and that Trezor uses, I mean, that chip is a complete black box. So it, it's not, you know, you don't need an NDA to download the data sheet for it, which is nice, but it's still a black box. And then if the Trezor team was to go to a foundry like TSMC or Samsung and say, okay, you know, we have the designs for this uh, open source secure element chip. Can you guys make it? They'll say, sure, but you need to use this PDK from the foundry, which is called a process design kit. And that is completely closed source. So what I'm trying to say is that even with an open source chip schematic or chip design, as soon as you start working with a foundry, there's parts of the chip that are closed source. So it's really, really difficult to figure this out. I would say that the best way to do it, where the, the most auditable, auditable way to do it is the precursor project by Bunny, um, which is also known as Btrusted. Uh, that, was, that made a, a few waves in the Bitcoin community a few months back when Bunny, he's a famous hardware hacker, was, was doing pre-orders on, on a website called Crowd Supply, and you can still go and pre-order it. And it uses an FPGA, which is like a programmable chip, where you can actually um, release the code that literally uh, arranges the gates inside of the chip. And that's pretty open source. So that's that, that would probably, I would say, would be a 9, 9.5. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is it's, it's a spectrum, and it's really important to like unpack the nuance as opposed to just be like, yeah, that's not open source, or yeah, that's a secure element, so that's crap. You know, you, you can't really do that. You have to really dive into it, I think, in a lot more detail, and then look at how the hardware wallet is relying on you know, the secure element. Yeah, interesting. I haven't heard about the precursor before. I just took my first look at it and I see that they had some sort of Kickstarter event mm-hmm. and they yeah. doubled the amount of money that they expected as the goal. So I suppose they're going to be shipping the devices, but they cost like $565, which is quite a lot. And they're, they're for developers. It's a development platform right now. So it's not anything that, uh, that you'd be able to provide to an end user, I think, any time in, in the near future. But if I look around for, for teams that are working on building these open chips or truly open hardware platforms, I look at, you know, the uh, what you know what the Trezor guys are doing um, with Tropic Square, and then also what Bunny and his group is doing with Precursor. I think those are two of the, the best efforts uh, today. Voltoro, and that's V-A-U-L-T, like a gold volt, and O-R-O, Oro, which is Spanish for gold is a gold and Bitcoin exchange, which offers instant swaps between hard money to over 31,000 customers from more than 95 countries. Voltoro has offered Swiss privacy and security since 2015. Furthermore, the gold you purchase is your legal property, secured in your name, so even if something happens to Voltoro, even liquidators could not touch your gold. If you want to become the custodian of your own gold bars, you can request 
to have them delivered to you or simply trade them back to Bitcoin on the dip. Register for free in only 30 seconds and start trading only with hard money. Please keep in mind that all trading involves risks. This is not financial advice and you are responsible for your own decisions. When you are using Wasabi Wallet, your internet connection gets routed through the Tor network by default. This means that you get better privacy while using Bitcoin. Download it today at wasabiwallet.io Okay, so let's get to the interesting part where I ask you to compare the foundation <laughs> device's passport with existing hardware wallets on the market. And I suppose that this is going to cause some controversy or not, depending on how diplomatic you are. But I will ask you to say something nice about the competition and say what the passport does better. So let's start Sounds with good. Trezor. So I really like that Trezor is truly open source in the sense that they're the only other hardware wallet maker that has published everything as open source, including the firmware and then also the, um, the hardware designs themselves, down to the electrical design files, the schematics, the, the mechanical enclosure. Like You can actually download all their stuff from GitHub and you could build your own treasure and you could even modify that in any way you want and then you could sell that to other people. So they've really embraced uh, open source and I think that's just really important for the space and they've, they've created a strong example for the space. Um, I think the biggest issue with Trezor is the lack of a secure element because it's one thing to be, it's, it's like you can be very ideologically driven around uh, open source, but the unfortunate fact with a Trezor is that you can extract the keys in about 15 minutes using readily available hardware. And that's been proved by Kraken Security Labs and Ledger's team. And so Trezor does a good job protecting you from any online threats, but does not do a good job protecting you from offline threats. And so I think, you know, that's probably one of the areas, of course, where we're strong in because we do have that secure element. Yeah, they did come up with the passphrase as a workaround for the lack of a physical security <laughs> yeah. chip. But the counter argument Which, for that is that people are usually terrible with remembering passwords. I, I don't even think that's the argument for it, honestly. Um, I remember, you know, my first hardware wallet was, of course, a Trezor. Uh, before that, I think I was using Armory with like an air gapped laptop, you know, back in the day. And I didn't realize, like, as, an, as a relatively new Bitcoiner, I did not understand the importance of having a strong passphrase. So I feel like one of my passphrases was like, I don't know, it was like four or five letters, you know, and that's not good because <laughs> you can just brute force that. Yeah, so I suppose the argument against passphrases is that most people put their year of birth or something that's easy to remember and also easy to social engineer. But let's move on to the ledger, which I suppose on that scale from one to 10 in terms of open source is somewhere around four or five because they have that famous but it was never hacked so it's very efficient secure element chip 
So what would you say that Ledger does very well? And what does the Passport do better? So, yeah, I mean, obviously the open source, the, the lack of an open the the inclusion of proprietary code that is closed source is a big problem, I would just say firstly. Um, what they do well, I think, is by having the proprietary chip and by driving everyone to use their Ledger Live software, they're able to do really good um, like supply chain validation. They're able to automatically check that the device has not been tampered with. You know, they're able to... Another, another commonly... or common phrase is, is uh, at device attestation, you know, where the device says this is, you know, this is a, you know, genuine device, right? You typically would give it some kind of challenge and ask it to sign something and send it back and say this is genuine. So I think that if you're looking at like buying hardware wallets from resellers, I would really be worried about buying like a Trezor and I would actually feel comfortable buying a Ledger. So I think they do a good job thinking about keeping the entire supply chain and the end-to-end security um, strong. Um, I think Passport, you know, Passport also does that, by the way. So we've added a supply chain validation check where you go onto our website and you scan a QR code and it's able to tell you that Passport is genuine. So, you know, we want to make sure we can match that while still having this open source, uh, you know, this open source device that's not running any proprietary code. And I do think the reliance on, on Bluetooth is difficult. I think the reliance on USB is difficult, but forget all that. I think the main issue I have with Ledger is that you can you have to enter a pin with only two buttons. <laughs> to me, Ledger is actually one of the most difficult hardware wallets to use. I think uh, I think a, a Trezor, uh, you know, the Model T is much easier. I think a Cold Card is easier. I think a Bitbox is easier, and I think a Ledger is just really challenging for uh, for new users because of the design element. And so when we were making Passport, that was something that was really important to us was, um, you know, things like navigating, scrolling up and down menus, entering your pin should be so easy that you do not need to learn how to use it. And I have wiped multiple ledger devices by getting the pin wrong three times because of how I was like trying to type it in. Oh, yeah, that happened to me. I can attest. And have fun restoring when you only have two buttons as well. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like a nightmare to get the seed back on the device. It takes a long time just to scroll through all the letters of the alphabet <laughs> and to the numbers. It can be a nightmare and if you mess up one letter and you don't realize you have to do it all over again. So from this point of view, it's terrible. But in their defense, <laughs> exactly. I can say that, it, you know, if I were to play devil's advocate, it makes you pay closer attention to what you're doing so you don't mess up. Like, there's a consequence for having a typo. You just waste a lot of time. You're very kind. <laughs> yeah, I, I try sometimes. But I speaking <laughs> of kindness, let's get to the cold card. Okay. So there are many claims that the passport is a fork of the cold card and there are many similarities between them both in terms of hardware and in terms of firmware what would you say are the major differences between the two devices and why do you think that the passport improves upon the cold card yes yeah, so this is where we've taken a lot of online flack and i think there's just a lot of drama anytime cold card comes up and it's not just us i know there's a lot of drama with 
with Bitbox as well and Trezor. And it seems like most of the other hardware wallet companies are, are blocked <laughs> by the cold card team on social media. Um, so look, it's, it's tough. I, I use, uh, I've been using CoinKite products for years. You know, I use Open Dimes. I use cold card. I have a block clock on my desk here. Um, we really respect the cold card security model, the open source nature of the device. Uh, the first device to use the secure element, you know, that 608A part in a very auditable and open source manner, you know, that's compatible with open source hardware instead of doing what Ledger is doing and, and having proprietary and closed source as aspects of the code. So we really like all of that. Um, what There's a lot of things that, you know, as a cold card user, though, I did not like. Uh, design... Um, the user experience in terms of, you know, how do you go about and and connect cold card to the software wallet of choice? Typically, you you have to watch all these tutorial videos. Every wallet has like some different kind of export format that's needed. It can be really frustrating to scroll on the device. Uh, it's pretty laggy. You know, you have to uh, export it to a micro SD card unless you want to plug it into the computer. Um, it It's just... It's a difficult to use device. There's a learning curve. And I think that's good for the early Bitcoiners, right? The early adopters. I think we're all excited about having this learning curve, but I don't think it scales well as, as we grow. So, you know, one thing we wanted to do was eliminate the learning curve. So you just know how to use the device out of the box. So if you want to pair it with something like Blue Wallet, you just scroll down and you click pair with Blue Wallet. And then it just gives you the right QR code. And then you scan that in Blue Wallet and everything is set up and ready to go. So that's more of our philosophy um, in terms of trying to make Passport as easy as possible to use. Um, and, you know, we actually did uh, use Cold Card's firmware as our base for Passport. And I think I made the mistake of saying on Tales from the Crypt uh, in summer of 2020 that we were, you know, forking Cold Card's code and that we have the same security architecture. So what we really did was we ported cold cards code to a new MicroPython project and made a ton of changes. The user interface is completely new. Um, we have a completely different components in the device. You know, we use the camera for QR codes. We use a larger screen that you have to connect to differently. Um, we have really nice font rendering that we've done. Uh, we have this open source true random number generator that we implemented. Uh, we have other components like uh, like a light sensor so we can auto adjust the screen brightness. We have a really nice keypad and we use a keypad controller for navigation, which helps give you, you know, really responsive key clicks. Then on the software side, you know, adding a, adding a camera is a ton of work. Um, but we've also done things like uh, supply chain validation, like I mentioned, where we actually can have Passport scan a QR code from our website and tell you that Passport is genuine, which is one of, I think, the biggest issues with cold card around supply chain attacks. Um, and then we have just a ton of other features as well. Um, when you actually go to use Passport and you use it to, you know, pair it with a, a single SIG or a multi-SIG wallet, we have like a whole wizard style flow that walks you through it that automatically allows you to, uh, for example, with multi-sig, and we can talk about this later, 
scan the, the multi-sig configuration right into Passport, and then even verify single-sig or multi-sig addresses on the device using the camera. Uh, so you scan a QR code of an address and it tells you if it belongs to Passport. So we're able to do a lot of really, really cool things and I'm excited to, to ship Passport in a few weeks so that everyone can, can see uh, what we've done. Okay, so let me coin a marketing term that you can use for this purpose when you compare to cold card. Like you can say that you are Mac OS to Unix or something. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a better comparison. Um, we still share common code around um, PSBTs, transaction signing, and some of the code around things like communicating with the flash chip. Uh, we really like, uh, you know, their fix for some of the, the SegWit vulnerability last year was to store like a hash of transactions so that you can compare that and make sure that... Um, that you're not trying to kind of sign the same transaction twice. So, you know, we share that code. Uh, we share some of the lower level secure element code and bootloader, but we actually decided to just implement a completely new and different bootloader from scratch. And um, we made some changes to the secure element code to improve some of the communications with the, with the secure element. So I don't think there's any code that's untouched. Um, and so the, the, the claim that we like cloned the device is, you know, could not be, could not be less true. Um, I think it's, it's safe to say that we, you know, we did more, we're, we're using more code from cold card than cold card used from, uh, from Trezor. I think that's absolutely accurate. But the other thing is, it's like, if you're starting a new hardware wallet project, you, you have two options, you know, option one is you do everything from scratch or option two is you look at the open source code that's around and you say, huh, you know, this is really great code. This has been battle hardened on the market for three years. Let's let's start with that as opposed to starting from scratch, because then your chances of having significant vulnerabilities are greatly reduced, especially when it comes to things like uh, the, the code that's creating the actual uh, and, and parsing the PSBTs, because there's a lot that can go wrong there. And so I think that if we had done Passport completely from scratch, We'd be taking a ton of flack for having a completely new device, completely untested, all from scratch code, and maybe we wouldn't even feel comfortable recommending it to customers for you know several months after after shipping. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to just use the code that is most tested. But I was about to ask you in regards to the bounties, and this is yeah. one side of the debate where the cold card usually has issues as they have a terrible history in rewarding people who honestly and transparently disclose vulnerabilities in the cold card to them before making them public, which is essential to strengthening the security of the device. So does foundation devices have a different policy in regards to disclosures? So we do not have anything in writing yet. However, I can commit to you on this podcast that we'll get something up on the GitHub and on the website to do some kind of bounty. We're a new startup. We raised a small amount of pre-seed funding last year, so it's not like we have a lot of money to throw around. Um, but I think we can definitely uh, inter you know, offer some kind of, of, of paid bounties, you know, security bounties for Passport. Um, I have to figure out exactly what the right amount is 
you know, I think something around like $1,000, you know, worth of Bitcoin is feasible for us. Something like $50,000 is not. Um, but as we grow as a company and become more successful, I think we can absolutely increase that, um, you know, increase the bounties that we offer. And, and that's something that we think is really important. Uh, security bounties are really important. Then also giving credit to the security researchers who find vulnerabilities, even if they're with a competitor, is really important. You know, one of the one of the first things we did when we were developing Passport was look at um, all of the different, of course, hardware wallet vulnerabilities over the years. And you know, for one example, we actually got a phone call with um, with Lazy Ninja who had written about a supply chain vulnerability with Cold Card uh, that I I believe was never acknowledged um, and is still never fixed. And so we we had a call with him and we said, Hey, can we talk more about this? You know, how do we fix this properly? And and then we were able to, you know, make those changes and, and fix it, right? And so um, I think it's really, really important to be friendly um, to security researchers. And then even though we, we don't have any bounty program up yet, uh, we have sent Passport out to uh, receive a security audit. Um, and we'll publish the results of that audit when it does come back. I think it'll come back uh, by the end of this month, so before we're actually shipping. Uh, and we hired the the guys, the, the wallet.fail guys to do that. I don't know if you remember or are familiar with the oh, wallet.fail presentation. It was quite a big event. In, <laughs> I think it was yeah. in December 2018. Yeah, so we, we, we paid them to do a security audit. So they currently have five passports. They currently have, you know, all of the latest code, even stuff that's not on our public GitHub yet. And uh, they're working on that. And they're pretty hardcore. So we're kind of nervous <laughs> because it's possible they'll find things. But if they find things that affect us, there's a strong chance it also affects Cold Card. And then we'll be able to, you know, su submit that to Cold Card and, and hopefully just, you know, strengthen, uh, strengthen the industry. Yeah, I hope so, too. I've been trying to get the wallet.fail guys on the podcast last year. I can and I could ask them. <laughs> I've also asked them and they seemed so uninterested. Like they they keep a low profile. Um and honestly it, it costs us a lot of money to do that. You know, like it costs us a lot of money to do this kind of, of security audit where it's kind of painful, but at the same time we didn't want to ship something to customers that, you know, hasn't been looked at by any hardcore security people, even though it's using an open source, you know, uh, firmware foundation uh, from from the cold card firmware. So are you aware of any other company which manufactures hardware wallets and went to the wallet.fail people for some sort of expertise and, you know? Um, I'm not directly aware. All I'd say is that my understanding is no hardware wallet company has ever published a report from them. <laughs> so by committing to publish it, uh, we could be opening ourselves up to uh, issues. And <laughs> um, because I think usually if anyone gets a, a, a report from them, they just, they just don't want to publish it. Yeah, that can be problematic. And I think they have something pretty personal with Ledger. Hmm. As I don't know about any of that, yeah. They still claim that Ledger never applied to their criticism about the food babe. I think that's what it was called. That exploit in which they ran... Basically, I think it was a game of Snake 
on the ledger <laughs> just to prove that they can do anything and bypass the security chip. Well, you have to keep in mind that Ledger uses two chips. One is the security chip running, I think the OS is called Bolos, right? The proprietary operating system. And then the other is just a normal chip. And so, yes, I mean, they did. They were able to install <laughs> other things on that chip, but this is actually more applicable. If you might recall, uh, I think it was later in 2020, later last year, there was a report that um, you could flash... Uh, something onto that non-secure chip on the ledger that allowed the ledger to behave like a keyboard when plugged into a computer. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, but the the vulnerability there was that, okay, sure, you know, if, if you flash like Snake or something on that, who cares, right? But if you flash something on it that allows it to behave like a keyboard, it could theoretically automatically open a web browser and take you to like a phishing site, you know? Um, and then ask you to enter your seed in. So that that's the issue there where um, if you do have the ability to, you know, to flash something onto the the non-secure chip, the normal chip on the device, then there's social engineering attacks you can do. So it did not affect directly any kind of security of funds or keys, but it opened the door to potential social engineering attacks. Hey, psst. Hey. What's your plan for the next Bitcoin top? Unless you need the money to purchase something, you probably should not touch infinitely inflationary fiat. Check out Voltoro and figure out to which extent hard money like gold and silver can help you preserve your purchasing power. You will be able to get back into Bitcoin as soon as the price hits a new bottom and you will not be subjected to the arbitrary inflation-driven volatility of fiat or fiat-backed coins. Obviously, this is not financial advice and you should understand that all trading involves risks. Wasabi Wallet connects to your full Bitcoin node and if you're not running one, it downloads block filters anonymously via Tor. In either case, you're getting excellent privacy. Download the software today at wasabiwallet.io. That's definitely interesting. But let me get back on track for a moment in regards to asking you sure. to compare the Passport with other devices. And I feel sorry for leaving the Bitbox O2 last as I think they <laughs> deserve a lot better and they do a lot of useful research for the entire space. So how does... I know that you have the same secure element chip. It's the ATEC 60 whatever it is. 608A. Yeah. 608A. And yep. how does it compare at the end of the day? How do you compare the Passport with the Bitbox O2? What's different? I, What's the advantage that Passport has? Yeah, I have a lot of respect for the Bitbox team. Um, in hindsight, we probably should have used the Bitbox O2 firmware as our base as opposed to the cold card firmware. Um, you would have had less because, drama. Yeah, they're very open source friendly. I believe it's written in Rust, which is something we want to do for the next gen passport. So anyway, it would have it would have been probably a good decision. My my biggest complaint with the Bitbox O2 is just the form factor, honestly. It's just the way of interacting with the device. It's tiny. You have those kind of touch controls. And I, I believe they've uh, they've done some work to make it easier to input text, but it's still really challenging. 
And um, I still don't really like having to plug into a laptop. I know you can plug into an Android phone, which is cool, but I think the QR codes just add a ton of versatility. And I think that, you know, being able to use QR codes to be compatible with wallets on iOS or Android is really good for us. Um, so I would say the biggest difference with the two is that Passport is really easy to use, really easy to, you know, scroll through, use the UI, enter text, restore your seed, enter your pin, all that kind of stuff takes seconds on Passport. And um, it works really well with mobile wallets in addition to desktop wallets. But I do think the Bitbox O2 is underrated. I did have a chance to listen to your interview from just a couple days ago with Ben Ma. So I think everyone should definitely check out that interview if they haven't. Oh, thank you. I think Ben Ma has done a lot of good research and he has even looked into Schnorr signatures yes. to create that anti-klepto system to verify that the connection between the device and the computer is not compromised. Yes. And I think... If, I know this might be a very slight tangent, so I'll keep it brief, but the, the idea of Bitbox working with Blockstream on that feature um, is a perfect example of the benefits of open source software and hardware, right? The idea that, you know, I believe Ben Ma said on, on your podcast that, you know, he, he took, I believe he took some of that code from Taproot or was it, I think it was Taproot, and then he implemented it on Bitbox, and then the Blockstream guys kind of took what he did and then did some work on it for Jade. Yeah. I, I, is, is that accurate? Okay. It is. So that, that's amazing, right? <laughs> what, what other industry could you do that in where you have two strongly open source projects that are literally taking each other's code, building on it, and then kind of, it's almost like passing, it's like the code is passing back and forth between two completely separate entities. And what that's doing is that's giving the industry better security. Um, the reason why we don't have any feature like that right now with Passport is because one, it's new, and two, we do everything over QR codes. It's harder to do that over QR. It's easier to do that over USB. Um, so I just want to point that out. Though we are having some discussions internally and with others to figure out you know, can we make that a standard for for uh, QR code air gap? Can we do some that that similar uh, that similar uh, feature, right? Um, but if if you have a hardware wallet and you have any either closed source code running on the device, or if you're like Cold Card now that's using a new license that is not an open source license, you know, it's it's the code is viewable, but the code is not open source. Um, that means that we can't work together to improve the security and work on features like this. Um, and so that's just a perfect example of why open source is so important. Yeah, I agree. I think a similar example would be Philips and Sony working on CD technology in the 90s mm. or the 80s and then DVD, but they had patents for it. <laughs> so they did work yeah, together, yeah. but they instated patents to protect their invention and make a lot of money off of it, which is not the case here. Right. So there are lots of people on Twitter, and I can think of JW Wetterman, who tells people actively not to use hardware wallets. And there are also advocates for building your own device with a Raspberry Pi Zero or something. Why yep. would you say that people should still purchase hardware wallets, even if it's more expensive? 
So I've had a couple calls with JW, firstly, and we've we've talked. <laughs> um, I've not participated in any of the clubhouse debates. I think JW's main point is that hardware wallet makers should not be just saying use our hard wallet, hardware wallet for anything. So for example, if a user is trying to store $5 million of Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, you know, should they be doing that with Blue Wallet in a single SIG setup, you know, with Passport? Maybe not, right? Blue Wallet is, uh, doesn't have as many eyes on it as Bitcoin Core. Um, it's on an iPhone, which could have security vulnerabilities that are undocumented. Um, it relies on Electrum servers, which discloses, you know, disclose some of your, your, your uh, information on addresses and account balances and all that. So I think he's just trying to ask hardware wallet companies to introduce more nuance into the conversation. Um, I, I do think, though, that for the majority of users, especially new users in Bitcoin, they're not going to be able to set up a Linux laptop. They're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to walk through the steps to use Yeti Cold or something else. And I think that there's a spectrum. You know, if someone wants to store a million dollars, maybe they want to use a multi-sig on a dedicated laptop with Spectre and Bitcoin Core using hardware wallets from three different manufacturers, for example. So I think what JW is looking for is for, for us as the hardware wallet makers to tell our customers that, hey, it's a spectrum and, you know, here's a guide if you're storing $50,000 of Bitcoin, you do this. If you're storing a million dollars of Bitcoin, you do this. If you're storing, you know, so on. So that's kind of my thoughts there. I think that um, using an AirGap Linux computer is infeasible for the vast majority of people. And hardware wallets are really great, especially in a multi-sig configuration. Now, with regard to the people saying, you know, use a Raspberry Pi or or other commonly available hardware like like Spectre DIY, for example, this is where I start to get a little a little annoyed, um, because these devices are not designed to be security devices. These devices are sold; they're closed source. the The hardware and you know is is closed source. Um, they they often have firmware and drivers that are closed source and they're not at all designed to protect private keys and i gotta say the argument of you know use these devices from to to kind of prevent supply chain attacks like i i get it but i also think that that takes a very short-term view i don't think i've heard anyone else say this on any podcast so i'll say it which is that in four years and eight years every single device is going to be a potential supply chain attack if Bitcoin reaches, you know, a $10 trillion, $100 trillion market cap, it doesn't matter if you're buying a Raspberry Pi or a laptop or anything. If every device has the potential to touch Bitcoin, then every device is a supply chain attack. And so the argument that today, you know, buy a Raspberry Pi or whatever because you can avoid the supply chain attack, I, I think that's an okay argument today, but I do not think that that argument scales as Bitcoin scales. So does that mean that we should load up on hardware wallets right now while the market <laughs> is still young? No, I think that means that every device is going to become a hardware wallet, honestly. I think that um you know, I think I think we'll probably see more complex multi-sig setups where you maybe have even layers of security, maybe time-locked, you know, funds, 
maybe you require certain thresholds of signatures to to move money around. And I think if 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 you kind of think of it as your laptop, your phone, your node are all essentially storing keys, and then your you have some air gapped, you know, offline hardware wallets that are also storing keys, and somehow you have some, you know set up with all of them where it requires that you, you know, authenticate from three different devices based on different amounts that you're sending or something. I think that's going to be the future that that we're all going to live in by the end of the decade. So I'm, I'm less concerned by all of this, honestly. And I think that um, as long as you're buying hardware wallets from different suppliers or maybe throwing like an iPhone into the mix or an Android phone into the mix into a multi-sig setup, I think you're probably in a really good place today. You have mentioned multi-sig setups quite a few times until now. Yeah. So I just have to ask, do you believe that they are like a silver bullet for security? And how would you compare that to Shamir's secret sharing, which is an alternative for individual users who just want to split their private key in parts that can be distributed geographically or can just be scrambled around so that it becomes harder for anyone to find them yeah. as opposed to 12 or 24 words that I don't know can be easy to find. I think multi-sig firstly is definitely better than Shamir's. I used Shamir's myself back in the day, you know, in like 2014 when I was using Armory wallet with an AirGap laptop and Armory let you like print out <laughs> um, you know, like on paper uh these Shamir uh, recovery kind of uh, sheets. And you could even like write down uh, a password on the piece of paper so you don't have to trust the printer. <laughs> I don't know if you ever ever use that or remember that. Um, but that was like, that, ha- that has a lot of issues. Um, in addition to not being interoperable with all the other wallets, because it seems like kind of each, each company that is offering a Shamir secret, sh- secret sharing implementation is like a unique implementation. Um, you still have the issue where, you know, you're, you're more vulnerable to those $5 wrench attacks. If someone points a gun to your head and says, give me your Bitcoin and you have your hardware wallet, there's nothing you can say. You can't say, oh, sorry, I require three other signers and two of them are in different geographic locations, which you can say with multi-sig. So I think Shamir's is interesting, but I don't think it really scales well. Um, I think multi-sig definitely does have the potential to be a silver bullet. I think the biggest issue with multisig now is lack of standards for getting the multisig configuration stored on the hardware wallet and doing multisig address verification on the hardware wallet. I think that's the biggest issue. And so one thing that I think that we do with Passport that is really different is that not only can you import your multisig configuration into Passport using QR codes, but you can actually scan an address and, and Passport will tell you if that address belongs to your multi-sig configuration. There's no standards for that, so we're actually brute forcing hundreds of addresses. It's not the most elegant way of doing it. And we're doing little shortcuts like we're remembering the index that you last signed from so that we, we can more quickly brute force the addresses and, and figure out if it belongs to you. Um, so I think that will get better over time as industry standards emerge. The reason we're able to do that is now not only do we have the camera, but we actually have a processor that is probably the fastest processor in any hardware wallet. It's at 480 megahertz. I think the Bitbox 02 is the fa- the second fastest at 120. 
So we're able to really crank it up and just brute force these addresses and verify these multi-sig addresses, and it's kind of awesome. Um, so I think by end of this year, we'll see a lot of improvements to that side of multi-sig, and hopefully it'll be a lot better. Right now, I'm looking at the Foundation Devices website, and I can see that I can still get the Founders Edition of the Passport for $299, which says that it's going to have a free surprise gift. I'm not going to ask you what that is, but... <laughs> we already we already leaked it on Twitter, so I can tell you what it is. I don't want to know. It, anyway. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> I'm kidding. You can say if you leaked it. It's... um. Uh, have you ever seen those those little Bitcoin white paper booklets by Coin Center? Mm-hmm. So that that's what we're giving to everyone. We're we, we we made a donation to Coin Center, and we're we have you know we 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 got a thousand of these uh, those little pocket white paper booklets, and we're just including one in each box. I I really like them. It's fun to have one, and it's fun to give them out. Uh, you know, to 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 anyone who's interested in Bitcoin. <laughs> right. That that sounds good, actually. I, I might just get <laughs> just it a fun little just gift. for that one. Anyway, <laughs> what I was about to ask concerns the fact that Ledger has had an issue with the marketing database. Yes. And my question for you was about to concern how you can actually get more privacy when pre-ordering the passport. Yeah. So this is tough. Um, and I know I'm actually going to be diplomatic here <laughs> instead of, you know, uh, say anything about about Ledger here. Uh, it is really tough to safeguard customer information. And I'm going to actually throw all of us hardware wallet companies under the bus a bit. Um, obviously, there's a there's a lot we can do. So what we do that's different from Ledger is that, uh, well, I, I know Ledger, one of the one of the big breaches came from using Shopify. You know, we we do not, you know, we we self-host. And by when I say self-host, I mean we are running this on DigitalOcean. We do not yet have our own servers, which is the next step. But we run our own WordPress and WooCommerce that's kept up to date. And um, you know, we we use Stripe for credit cards and we use BTC Pay that's also self-hosted for Bitcoin processing. Um, and then of course, you know, we we purge records 30 days after we ship um, so that there's nothing you know, on online that could be stolen from that regard. We also moved our customer mailing list from MailChimp to also be self-hosted. So there's no MailChimp employee that can just go in and check, you know, our email addresses. And I do know some other hardware wallet companies do use MailChimp for their email list. So we're trying to bring as much as possible in-house. Um, we'll set up a security page on the website so that we kind of show you exactly the third parties we use and where that data is stored. Obviously, if you're buying a hardware wallet and you care at all about your privacy, you should pay in Bitcoin and you should ship it to an address that's not your home address. That's really important. Um, and the reason is, is because even if we go to these extreme lengths, uh, it's not enough. And I'll give you the perfect example. Um whatever shipping carrier you use retains those records for six months. So no matter what we do, we're shipping devices via UPS to customers. And that, you know, UPS is going to see our account number as foundation devices. They're going to see the customer mailing address and they're going to see the return address or the address that we shipped uh, the devices from to the customer. So any UPS employee can just go into their computer and pull up our account 
and probably look at this information. And so I just want to be really point out that it's really easy to pile on to go after and kind of criticize Ledger. And I do think that if you're a hardware wallet company, you should be self-hosting your, you know, your, your e-commerce site and using as few third-party services as possible. But like, it's really hard. The, the, the shipping alone is enough to um, ruin the entire system. So I wish I could be more optimistic about it. We're doing like, I think more than, more than Ledger did. And, and we're, we're being, you know, really careful on the, on the self-hosting side, but honestly, uh, none of it's enough when you're using, uh, shipping carriers. Yeah, that was a long and good answer. Yesterday, <laughs> Lawrence Nahum from Blockstream said that the uh -huh. easiest way is to just take the marketing database offline and never keep it on anything which gets exchanged from one computer to the other. Yeah, but that's just, it's unrealistic when you're shipping something to a customer, right? Like you, as, as you have, you, that data has to go out somewhere, you know, that, and, and there's one other service provider that I bet you Blockstream uses. Uh, they don't host their own email server. No one hosts their own email server because you run into serious deliverability issues if you try to host your own email server. And so all, pretty much every company uses either Amazon, SES, Mailgun, um, and uh, SendGrid, uh, Mandrill for MailChimp, and a few other providers. So all of those retain logs of your emails. We use Mailgun. They retain logs for two days. But that still means that a Mailgun employee could go in there and could set up something to automatically copy every email that's sent, you know? So I would love to have, I, I, I wish that other companies were just more transparent about this. Like we've looked at every single third party that we use. We've looked at their policies for data retention and there's only so much you can do. I think it would be nice if we had more like remailer services, I think would be really, really cool if there was a lot of competition there. Uh, it would be amazing if if some postal carriers could offer like like a virtual address, you know, that was more widely supported uh, for mailing addresses. And it would be amazing if we could stop using email. My dream would be that we can just, you know, communicate with all our customers over something like Sphinx in the future, you know, where all we know is is uh, you know, uh, their 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 lightning node, and we don't need to know anything about them. And so, hopefully, over this decade, we can help support that future. Yeah, that would be awesome. And I was about to ask you my last question from the list yeah. that I made. What should we expect next from foundation devices? And what are you currently working on that can be disclosed? So we're trying to be like the Apple of the space. Um, we have been working on a node product. I don't know when we'll release that. We're pretty heads down on Passport. Um, but it's not a Raspberry Pi, <laughs> is what I'll say. Uh, it's it would be the first one that's like actually all all custom and open source and all that. And I think it's going to be really fantastic. Hope hopefully we can release that by end of this calendar year. But we're pretty focused on on Passport right now. Um, in the long term, we want to do a phone, you know, a smartphone. Um, we'll see how that goes. And then I am really excited about the next generation passport. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but we've started to work on that more from a 
architecture and design perspective. And I'm really, really excited about where we'll take the the next generation, which would not, you know, come out until sometime in 2022. Sounds good to me. And I hope with the note, you're going to have a lot more success than Casa, who are also trying to be the Apple in terms of offering devices. They even copied the packaging with how you open the box and how it's all white. <laughs> and our, our box is kind of, we, we have some unboxing videos floating around, but we hated the packaging. So we just started from scratch and uh, I, yeah, we, we posted a, a kind of recent video on Twitter with like the new unboxing and we, we kind of went the Apple direction as well, but instead of all white, we threw some teal into the, to the bottom. So it actually looks pretty cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I think if you're doing a node, I think it's still kind of early in terms of, in terms of users. So I don't know, you know, how many units we would sell right away, but I don't think you can do a raspberry Pi. I really don't like raspberry Pis in terms of performance and stability and all the ports in the worst places. And I think you need a hardware wallet to be part of the node. I think that's really important. And so that's the direction that, that we're going. You should talk to the Bitbox O2 people as they had a similar project. Which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I know that was a Raspberry Pi, but I, no, I also it was do not. not. It was a Rock 64 or something. Oh, Rock, Rock Pro 64. Yes, yes, sorry. So it's similar to a Raspberry Pi, but a lot more powerful. And it um, also it, had an the... embedded hardware wallet. Yes. The, the nuance there, though, is that that was when Casa was using a Raspberry Pi 3, and the Rock Pro 64 was significantly faster than the Raspberry Pi 3. I do believe the Raspberry Pi 4 is faster now. So just want to throw that out there in terms of nuance. But yes, I do like, I, I did like the direction that the Bitbox guys were going in with their node. And um, I also liked what they were going in with, like, the tamper-resistant packaging. And so uh, we'll definitely talk with them more at, uh, at some point. Okay, so thank you very much, Zach Herbert. I'm not sure if I have any more questions for you at this time. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, it was really great, and I'm really enjoying this new this new series. I have not yet listened to the the Blockstream Jade interview, so I'll probably do that today. Oh, thank you. I, pre I appreciate it. So yeah, I hope course. we get to do another one when you launch the new generation of the Passport or the Node or something. Yeah, and we'll get you a Passport device for testing as well once we start shipping. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Voltoro has a 100% track record with fully audited and insured gold bullion that are secured in a top-tier tax-free Swiss vaulting facility. It also features the generous affiliate program OTC Trading of physical delivery and pickup or trade back to Bitcoin in seconds. Register for free and check out the ways in which you can trade hard money and preserve your wealth. And if you want to help this show, sign up using the voltero.com slash Bitcoin takeover link that you can also find in the description. Keep in mind that this is not financial advice all trading involves risks, and you are responsible for your own decisions. Wasabi Wallet's innovative coin joints will make your Bitcoins more fungible. So if you accumulate more than 0.1 BTC, you can mix it with other users to remove all traces about their whereabouts. 
So it's like putting multiple fingerprints on your dollar bills and it becomes impossible to determine the last few owners of the money. Download Wasabi Wallet today and start coin joining.